Well, we come now to uh, a time where we look at God's Word uh, in earnest. We take a time and we, we delve into uh, the Gospel and we look at how the glories of Christ are revealed. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, and we're going to be hitting on the topic of the triumphal entry. Now, we looked at the triumphal entry back uh, uh, at the beginning of the year, back around Easter time. Uh, that's what we do every year. We look at uh, the, the triumphal entry, and then we look at Easter, and we pair those two things up. But here in God's providence, we uh, come to the text again. I don't know, you probably don't remember this, but we actually, I chose not to use a gospel account when we looked at the triumphal entry before. Uh, instead, we looked at Zechariah 9, which I will touch on just briefly in our sermon uh, this morning. But today, we're going to be looking at the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, in that moment before he goes to the cross, that week, uh, that holy week, as they came into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, Jesus comes in as the King of glory. So with that, why don't we turn to the text? We're going to be reading the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 uh, to 11. Mark 11, 1 to 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. It's also printed for you in, in the bulletin. Uh, and it, for those of you who are virtually with us, it is there in the, on the screen before you. Hear God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said, They told them that what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is come blessed is the coming kingdom I'm sorry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for help in understanding your word this morning and for applying it to our hearts. Grant us your Holy Spirit uh, and help me as I proclaim the gospel. Help me to be faithful with those words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I try, generally speaking, to be dutiful in all the tasks that are set before me, I don't always accomplish it, but I try. And um, there was one time where I kind of regret being dutiful. Now, it wasn't because what I was doing was bad. In fact, it was good. I was working, uh, helping out with a college ministry at a church in Boston. And of course, this was a few years back in 2004. And we had a retreat now, I was asked to help organize the retreat. 
it was a good duty. I should have been excited about it. I got to hang out with college students and minister to college students. But to be frank, I didn't want to be there, and I even sort of regret going. You might ask why. Well, for those of you who don't remember or don't really care, 2004 was a banner year for my favorite sports team, the Boston Red Sox. They had just won their first World Series in 80, what was it? 80 some odd years. I can't even remember. And on this same weekend, when I was to be at a retreat in the Boston area west of the city, the entire region was gathering for a parade that I could not go to. Aaron and I, in fact, considered sneaking out of the retreat and leaving to go to the parade. We didn't. We did our duty. But to this day, I kind of regret it. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity. But it was a glorious thing. The whole area, the whole region came out to usher in those Boston Red Sox players as they sat on their duck boats and paraded through the city of Boston. And everybody was shouting and acclaiming and proclaiming the wonders of these players. Now, I don't know what it was like for Jesus on that day and entrance into Jerusalem. I don't know for sure. But for a certain segment of the population, it was a glorious moment. Here was Jesus, the one who had done wondrous miracles, who had healed the sick and the blind and the lame, who had proclaimed good news and the coming of the kingdom, the one who people wondered, is this the one? Is it he? Is this the Messiah? Was coming to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, to the heartbeat city, to the place where the king of Israel would dwell where the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. It was that glorious moment, a once in a lifetime event, Jesus entering triumphantly into Jerusalem. The king of glory had come. Of course, everything would change in a week. Lots of things would happen and and that king of glory who entered into Jerusalem, who was praised as he was entered, would of course be crucified. His disciples would abandon him at the cross. People would yell, crucify him. He would be whipped and scourged, beaten and hung. He would die that ignominious death. Nevertheless, at this moment, the king has come. And this morning, I want us to consider what it means that Jesus came into Jerusalem. And I want us to behold Jesus. I want us to see him as the great King and Lord who comes to us to save. You'll notice here, even at the outset, that the words Hosanna, which we'll look at in more depth, means save, please, come, save. There's a longing they had, and I think it ought to be our longing here. The King of glory, King Jesus, comes. Behold, your King comes to save. Well, 
I'm going to look at this in three parts. I want to look at the authority of King Jesus. Then I want to think about him coming, the king coming. And then I want to think about the king saving. So th those three areas, uh, I want us to think about the authority of the king, the king coming, and the king saving. So first, the authority of the king. Now you'll remember last week that we looked at uh, this uh, story about uh, Bartimaeus. We, we recognize also that Jesus was on a journey from he was in Judea, he was ministering, but now he was moving toward Jerusalem. He had come to Jericho. He had met Bartimaeus, who had cried, the son of David, come, help me, save me, right? He was blind, he was a beggar, and he wanted the Lord Jesus to have mercy on him. And of course, Jesus does, and Bartimaeus, the blind, whose eyes were opened, comes. And the only reason I bring that up this morning is because there's some Old Testament background to this. Way back, we go to, to back to uh, the, the, the story of David. There was a holdout city. Uh, there was a holdout city uh, of the Jebusites. And now the Jebusites were uh, a Canaanite uh, people, and they were meant to be uh, eradicated from the land, but they hadn't been. But David comes, and this holdout city, of course, was Jerusalem. And at this moment, they were jeering at David. They were sitting on the walls. Jerusalem sits on a height. And they were, they were jeering at David and his army saying, you, you know, you can come in. The blind and the lame will stop you. I mean, that was essentially it. And then, of course, David responds and saying, you're the blind and the lame. It's kind of his language. Um, and they, they won't. They will be cursed. They, they will be destroyed. But here in our text, what happens is Jesus, as he marches into Jerusalem, doesn't destroy the blind, but he gives them eyes to see and they follow him. He conquers them as well. And here they are marching in as the king comes into the city, just as David done so many generations before. Now, I want to look at the authority of Jesus. Jesus is with his disciples and he tells them, I want you to do this thing for me. I want you to go, and I want you to go and get a colt of a donkey, a young foal, a, 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 this little donkey that's never been ridden before. I want you to go get it. It'll be tied up, and I want you to untie it, and I want you to bring it back to me. And if anybody tells you that, uh, it, it, you know, why, why are you, or asks you, why are you doing this? I want you to simply say, the Lord has need of it. And then we'll also give it back. It's for a time. We'll send it back as soon as we're done. Um, what a strange thing for Mark to record. This little seeming very logistic situation, right? Why is he so concerned with this little donkey and riding on this donkey? Well, before I get to that particularly, I want to notice a few things first. Jesus makes a request. Jesus says uh, in this account, he says, go into the village. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied that no one has ever sat on. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anybody asks about it, say that we'll bring it back and the Lord has need of it. And then what happens immediately following that? The disciples go. 
They find a colt tied in the outside in the street, and they untie it. And some people ask, what are you doing? Which is a natural thing to ask if, you know, I was going to go and just kind of hop in one of you guys' cars. You might ask, what are you doing? It's a legitimate thing. I, I've always wanted to be, uh, you know, one of those police officers who's like, uh, I'm commandeering your vehicle to chase down the bad guy. Right? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I have authority to do this. And that's sort of what happens here. The disciples say, the Lord has need of it, right? The master, the one who is in charge, the one who has authority, needs it. What do they do? They let it go. It's really intriguing. What I want us to note here is that when Jesus commands, when he says, go do this thing, this is what you will find. And if somebody says anything, this is what you'll say, and it will all come to pass, and you'll bring this cult back. And what happens? The disciples go, and they obey the Lord Jesus, and they find the cult, and they untie it just as he said. And when somebody asks, they tell them what Jesus told them, and they let the cult go, and they go back. What's the point? Why am I bringing this up? What I want us to see here is that Jesus has all authority. He is the king. He commands, and it comes to pass. Not only does he have awareness about this donkey and his divine nature, he understands what exactly is going to be there. But secondarily, when he commands, it comes to pass. He is the king of kings. We see Jesus's authority not only in the obedience of the disciples and the obedience of the owner of the donkeys called and all the things that attend to that situation, but we also see Jesus' authority in his self-revelation. What do I mean by this? Okay, well, this takes a little bit of time to unfold. This is where I want to look a little bit at Zechariah chapter 9.9. So why a donkey's uh, little foal? Why this cult of a donkey. Now, if you remember my sermon, you might remember this, but I don't expect that because I didn't even remember uh, fully uh, my sermon, and I don't expect that anyone would necessarily, but this is what I uh, highlighted in that sermon some months ago. In Zechariah 9.9, there is a promise, a prophetic word. This is what it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's Jesus doing? He's making a declaration, not necessarily with his words, but a symbolic declaration, declaration with his actions. He is revealing his true nature, his character, his person. But it's not just Zechariah 9.9. There's actually a promise that goes even further back. If we go all the way back to Genesis, way, way back, you'll remember that at the end of his life, you've read the book of Genesis, at the end of his life, Jacob blesses the 12 sons who become this 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons' name is Judah. Judah. Now, what's special about Judah? Well, he has his own story, and it's not always glorious. It's not always great. But in this 
blessing by Jacob to his son on his deathbed, he says this to his son Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. And then these words, most importantly, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes, meaning he wears purple robes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. It's just a picture of a king that would come from Judah's line, that great lion of Judah, the one who would ride on the donkey's colt. So what is, what is Jesus saying? It seems a little obtuse to our ears, right? Like, Jesus, what's your point in riding on this donkey and, and, and alluding to all these Old Testament passages? It seems obtuse and it seems very subtle. But I believe he's actually declaring his authority in a pretty direct way, especially for the religious leaders. You see, they saw him as a blasphemer. They saw him as one who was claiming to be God, the Son of God, the Messiah. And by him taking on this mantle and wearing, and wearing the, the sort of garb of the Messiah by riding on this donkey and entering into Jerusalem with praises being sung to him straight out of the Old Testament Psalms, it would have been a blaring horn to the religious leaders. Now, Jesus is also declaring something else, too, about his very nature. He is the Messiah King. It's the first time that he's, he's said this in a way. He didn't declare it with his words, but he showed it through his actions. Remember, up to this point, he's been telling the disciples, no, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. My time isn't yet. And now he says, here's my time. Here's my time. I am the Messiah. But I'm going to show you what the Messiah is like. Up until now, he's been quiet about his identity. But now he approaches Jerusalem, symbolically claiming this title of Son of David, Lion of Judah, Messiah. And what is the effect? What's the effect? Well, it's praise, right? He comes into Jerusalem. He's being praised. But in a few short days, the plot will thicken. They will be people who want to kill him because of this declaration. Jesus, as the king with all authority who rightfully is claiming his kingship, is at the same time setting into motion the very means that he will use to establish his kingdom namely the cross. Do you see the king in all his authority? He says, now's my time. I am the Messiah. And in that moment, he's saying, take me and crucify me. It's all part of his plan. His declaration as the Messiah 
was a royal edict. Just as he told his disciples to get the donkey, he's telling his enemies to crucify him. You see, everyone and everything is under his authority. There is nothing that happens apart from his command, no matter how awful that thing might seem or be. It is under the authority of King Jesus. And Jesus, in obedience to the will of the Father in heaven, is going into Jerusalem to endure the most awful thing that ever was. But Jesus says it well later in the Gospel of Mark when he says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written. King Jesus is not taken by surprise. He is not in some battle of wills. King Jesus commands and orders, and it comes to pass. Despite his humility and his going to the cross, Jesus is the King of kings and sovereign Lord who is accomplishing his his purposes that none can thwart. And I have a feeling we don't always grasp the Lord's plans, do we? More often than not, we believe things are out of control out of his sovereign control. And I think it's often why we take matters into our own hands. It's why Peter rebukes Jesus. It's why Peter takes out his sword and cuts off an ear. It's why Peter, when Jesus is arrested and he's sitting by the fire and people say, aren't you one of his disciples? He says, who, me? No. And he denies Jesus. It's because he thinks things are out of control. But the reality is quite different. The sovereign king reigns. And here's the thing. Even in the midst of those awful things, he is a good king and he reveals himself and his power and his authority in his way and in his time for our good and for his glory. More often than not, we wring our hands We figure either he's forgotten about us and our suffering and our sorrow or that in some way he has become impotent. In reality, he is the one who before time began covenanted with his father to redeem us, to die for us. And he has worked all things out to bring about salvation. And he is continuing to work all things out today, even as the consummation approaches, even as The kingdom is being established, and we look forward to that day of glory. God in Christ is reigning and ruling on high, and he is establishing his kingdom by his power for his glory. Jesus' self-revelation of his kingship was veiled, but it was through that very veil that his glory and power and authority and salvation was revealed. All right, I want us to consider the next thing. We've looked at the authority of the king, but now I want to look at the coming of the king into Jerusalem. It was a moment of celebration. Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been ministering. He ministered in Galilee. He ministered in Judea. He ministered on the outskirts of Israel and Gentile territories. But now he is coming into Jerusalem. This is, as I said before, sort of that heartbeat 
city of the people of God. And he's coming into Jerusalem. Now, I, I don't know how you feel but uh, about Boston, but that's how I felt back in 04. Everything was streaming into that city. I wanted to be in the city. I wanted to be singing and praising and wondering at the, the, the wonder of the Boston Red Sox. That was where I was at at that time. It was, it was the heartbeat of life. I wanted to be a part of it. I was even willing to, I didn't, because I, I, but I wanted to leave my responsibilities behind. That's, that's Jerusalem, and here Jesus is entering that city, that heartbeat. Expectations are starting to grow about Jesus. You know, he's a teacher. He's a great teacher, rabbi. He's a prophet. He's often called master or Lord. He's declared himself, as we've already seen, as the Son of Man. And now he is showing himself to be the true Messiah. He hasn't publicly revealed himself as the Messiah up to now. Yet people are wondering, they're hoping. He's healed the lame, right? That was a big piece of the Messiah. You remember uh, in the Old Testament, that language of, the lame shall leap for joy was, it was a, a common refrain. I want to read from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time I will bring you in. And at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before the eyes, before your eyes, says the Lord. Do you see? That's what was in the back of the minds of the people of Israel as they followed Jesus into Jerusalem. Those words were coming back to them. Here he is the one who will restore us, who will take us out of our shame, who will sing over us and praise us, who will restore our fortunes. Here he is. You can, you can hear them as they, they come in and they follow Jesus into Jerusalem. And you can imagine blind Bartimaeus as well, the one we looked at last week, or those who had been healed of their blindness or their ears had been unstopped of their deafness or their tongue had been released Hear these words of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for the law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. 
I'm sorry, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on the, uh, gives breath uh, to the people on the, on the land and uh, on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Sorry, I butchered the reading of that, but the picture is there was a hope and an expectation that the blind would see, that those who were prisoners in the dungeon would be set free. And so as they're coming into Jerusalem, they're laying down their cloaks and their palms and they're singing this psalm, Psalm 118, which we'll look at more closely at the end. But I just want us to see that their hope is that maybe this is the one. He's the Messiah and he has come. Here he is, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. They cry out to him, Hosanna, save us. We pray, save us. Of course, in Aramaic, that word is uh, Hosanna. It comes from that root word of Hebrew, which is uh, Yasha. Uh, and that, of course, is where we get names like Joshua and Jesus, the Lord who saves. But Yasha, save, we pray. And indeed, Jesus, the Messiah King, is coming into Jerusalem to save his people. And there's just a couple of things I want to note about his coming. It is one of the most wonderful truths that we can declare. The king comes. You know, I think this idea of Christ being present or coming, you know, coming to earth as a baby and living and dying is so part and parcel to our Christian view of things that I think I just want us to wonder at this idea that Jesus comes. It's a marvelous truth. The one enthroned in glory, who is transcendent, who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is from everlasting to everlasting, comes to us. He comes to us. The King of heaven condescends and comes to us. Why? Because he sees our plight. Do you remember the Israelites of old? When they were stuck in Egypt, when they were suffering under the bondage of slavery, they cried out, Lord, Lord, save. And the text back there in Exodus says, the Lord saw them and he knew. And he came and he delivers them. He brings them out through the Red Sea and delivers them and brings them through the wilderness to the promised land. So the king comes to us captives of sin and bound for death. He doesn't leave us there. We deserve it. But he doesn't leave us. He comes to us. He delivers us. He redeems us. And the king comes in humility and peace. We noted that uh, he rode on this donkey. And uh, why a donkey? And why this little cult of a donkey? If we were to go back and look at Zechariah 9, uh, we would notice that he says he, he comes humble and mounted on, on a donkey. And I think they're on this cult of a donkey. I think there's just a couple things to note about it. 
One is he's not riding a horse. He's not coming in his war regalia. He doesn't have a sword. He comes in peace. And I think that picture of the the king riding on the donkey is, is like a king who doesn't have to be concerned. He is establishing his kingdom of a, as a kingdom of peace, and he comes in peace. But not only that, but the donkey is, well, it's a donkey. <laughs> it's a common beast. He comes in humility. He comes willing to become like the people he's saving, right? He takes on our flesh. He becomes a servant. He willingly lays his life down for us. I want to just go back to that passage in Isaiah. I'm not going to read anything from it. I've already read it, but I wanted to just note one other thing about that passage in Isaiah. You'll notice how the king comes. It says, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth forth justice to the nations. But then it says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He comes in humility and tenderness and he comes to save those who are wounded and broken, who are caught, trapped, enslaved uh, to sin. A bruised reed he will not break. But he does come to conquer, and he conquers his and our enemies. And I think sometimes we underestimate two things. We underestimate our plight, how desperate it is that we are, that we need him to come. We underestimate that we need this Lord of glory to come with tenderness and humility and grace. But we desperately need him. You know, I was thinking about this, you know, this language of redemption and, and freedom from slavery. Right? It's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New Testament. But here's the problem. You, you, you've heard of that syndrome, Stockholm syndrome, right? Like when somebody's a captive, they, they, get, they get used to it and they start to like identify with their captors. Um, it's, I don't know anything about it other than that. But, um, but I think we're sometimes a little bit like that. We, we don't even realize that we need to be set free, that we need somebody to come and rescue us. In fact, I would say it's even greater than that. It's worse than that. You see, our captivity wasn't because we were dragged off against our will, was it? The reason that we find ourselves in captivity is because we have abandoned the king. We have made allegiance with his enemies. And in all reality, we deserve to be left. We deserve to be set aside to say, you know what, forget you. Moving on from you, you're no longer my people. God could have said that and it would have been just. Yet the king comes. And he came into the city of Jerusalem and he looked around. Did you see that at the very end of the text? He goes up to the temple mount and he looks around and he sees everything. And what does he see? Well, We'll see in the very next passage that he sees the temple is like a den of thieves, right? The money exchangers are there extorting the people as they come in for the festival. And he's looking around and he's seeing it, all the wickedness that's going on around him. And he looks and he sees us trapped 
slaves to our own sin. In the account of Luke, instead of saying that he looked around and looked at everything, it says that he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem. Why did he weep? He wept because he knew that Jerusalem, that glorious city of God, would be eventually turned into rubble. And the people that lived in it, that dwelt in it, would be ruined in it because they did not recognize the time of visitation. Jesus had come. And he wept as he looked around because he knew he came to lay his life down for those who were his enemies. Friends, the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem for you. He came for you. Despite your rebellion against him, he sets you free by his mercy and grace. Do you see your own captivity? But do you see the love of Jesus coming for you? Don't miss him. Don't miss that day of visitation of God's grace because there is another visitation day coming. It will look different. He won't be riding a colt of a donkey in humility and grace. He will come in another form. He'll come riding a horse and with a sword. But don't miss this. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. And he calls you to trust in him. To cast your lot with him. He is your king. Put your faith in the one who comes. Lastly, and in conclusion, I know it's hot out there. (laughs) The salvation of the king. The people around Jesus are singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This song would have been sung at this time, no matter if Jesus had been coming into the city or not, because it was part of a group of songs called the Hillel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118 were psalms that were traditionally sung uh, at the Passover, at this festival time as the people were coming in uh, to the city. And this particular quotation comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. This is the, the, the The quote from Psalm 118, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, commentators question whether those singing it were applying it to Jesus as the Messiah. Right. Were they singing it generally and Jesus was coming into the city? Commentators kind of debate this thing. Or were they singing it to Jesus himself? Well, my guess is that some were just singing it. It was the song that you sang as you came to the festival. But some of it were singing it to Jesus. But no matter who sang it and who they sang it about, it was a song about Jesus. The overarching theme of the psalm is the return of the king who has returned victorious from battle. If you go back to Psalm 118, it's all about David who's away and he's pressed on every side and he's in dire straits and the Lord saves him and delivers him and he's coming back into the city. And then at the end of the psalm are these words, this 
this this glorious psalm of praise to the king who is coming back victorious from battle. And here the psalm is being sung of Jesus. He's the victorious king, but you'll note he has not actually attained victory yet. He hasn't gone to the cross. And yet here they are singing these victory songs about Jesus. Why? What, is it a little premature, Jesus? You haven't gone to the cross yet. The reason is because his victory is sure. His victory is sure. The cross lies before him, but his victory is sure. Jesus enters Jerusalem with shouts of praise and thanksgiving at his saving work even before it is complete. Because there is nothing, nothing that can stop him from accomplishing salvation for his people. There is nothing, nothing that can stop Jesus from saving you and me from our sins. He has done it. Of course, the shouts of joy turn to wails of lament as he hangs on the cross a short week later. But even there, the angels shout for joy, right? As the cross, that ignominious, horrific death is being portrayed to the world. The angels are shouting for joy for the king has brought salvation. He has heard our cries for salvation and he has saved. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray.